We're in Matthew chapter 19 today. If you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 19 is where our Bible study time is going to be. For those of you who love the Bible, love to study the Bible, for those of you who want to have impact with the Bible, make sure you pull your notes out of your bulletin today or fire up our Journey app so that you can follow along there. Um, I know that there are 48 Sundays a year. You take notes, you go home, you throw those notes away, you never look at them again. I'm hoping this is one or two of those Sundays that today you go home and you put the notes away and you think, I'm going to pull those out later um, because I think those are going to be useful to me in my spiritual journey. I think today's notes could be useful in your spiritual journey. You might need today's notes Thursday more than you need them today. So um, take good notes, kind of hang on to them. I think it's going to be one of those kind of days. We're in week two of a series we're calling Broken People, Sexuality, and Marriage in the Gospel of Grace. We're looking at the brokenness in our hearts, in our lives, in our community, and in our world, um, and we're just asking God to be gracious to us in those areas that we find ourselves broken. We will not talk much about marriage in the midst of this series, but we are having a marriage and relationship conference this Friday night, this Saturday morning. Um, We would love for you to be a part of it. If you're engaged, if you're considering getting engaged, or if you're married, we'd love for you to join us for about three hours on Friday night, about four hours Saturday morning. I believe the trajectory of your marriage will be straighter and better Saturday at noon if you're a part of this conference than maybe it wouldn't have been if you weren't there. So we'd love to invite you to be a part of that. Um, We think it'll be a really life-giving time with Pastor Daniel Floyd and his wife, Tammy. We're gonna have a lot of fun together and then he'll be here next Sunday speaking to us about marriage as well. I think it's gonna be a really good weekend. We still have a few spots left for that if you wanna register. If you're a part of our online congregation, maybe you don't live in Kansas City, you can go to the events section of our website. You can register there. It's $25 instead of 50 to watch online. The content will not be released publicly after the conference, um, so you got to be a part of the conference to get the content, but it's going to be, um, I believe, a really, really good time. Week two of Matthew 19, handling some difficult, contentious stuff in the kingdom of God. Here's what Jesus says. When Jesus had finished saying these things, you might circle those two words, these things, refers to Matthew chapter 13 through Matthew chapter 18, Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God. He left Galilee, that's in northern Israel. He went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan, 65 miles south. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees, religious leaders from Jerusalem, came to test him. They asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God is doing together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it wasn't this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciple said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, probably better not to marry, right? Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only to those, only those to whom it's been given. For there are eunuchs, those would be unmarried men, it symbolizes all single people. Eunuchs who were born that way, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. So I want to start today with a quick summary of last week, but um, I'm going to ask you to do what I do not normally ask you to do. If you were not here last week, go back and listen to this message. Um, 
I don't know that you can grasp the whole series or the heart of our church in this series unless you listen to last week's message. I know you're far too busy to go and do this, but the next six weeks' impact really hinges on message number one. I'll try to summarize it in two minutes, but if you have time this week on your drive time, go back and listen to it on the way to and from work. We learned last week that the Pharisees wanted to create tension through cultural views on marriage and divorce. They were not looking for truth. They came to Jesus and asked the hot button issue of the time. Um, They were trying to get him to give the wrong answer to cultural tension so people would not follow Jesus. And we said we are living through this same cultural tension today, really not in the area of marriage and divorce and remarriage, but in the area of the LGBTQ community and how they're going to come to Jesus and follow Jesus. We said there's a lot of tension in this area in the church, and a lot of people aren't looking for truth. They're just looking for tension. And we as a church are going to try to walk the lane that has really two boundaries, um, the truth of the word of God and the love of the son of God. We said as a church, we believe we are called to believe the word of God, but we believe we're called to behave like the son of God. And we believe in this lane of believing the word of God and behaving like the son of God that we can have impact. So there is tension in the culture, but we believe there is a lane of impact in the church. So Jesus, they were looking for tension. Jesus responded with truth and grace. He says, here's what the word of God says, but here's how God's grace meets brokenness right in the middle of the word of God. So we in this series are going to try to find this lane, and we've said we're not going to reach the fringes. People who have already decided, I reject the word of God, but I'm going to try to follow Jesus, probably we won't have any impact on them as a church. People who say, I believe the word of God, and I reject sinful people, we won't have any influence on them as a church. But people who say, I believe the word of God, but I'm willing to behave like the son of God and live in messy grace, I think there's a lane for us to impact people there. And that's where our aim will be as a church, truth and grace. Because we said, we believe the gospel of grace is still restoring all things one person at a time. We closed last week with Colossians 1 that says people were separated from God because of the, of they were enemies in their mind. We were separated from God because we thought we knew better than God and what God said. We kind of checked through our filter of truth. We were alienated from God because we disagreed with God, and that made our behavior evil. But then we met Jesus, and Colossians 1.22 says, now he's changing things in us. We used to be separated from God because we didn't agree with God. We thought we knew our own way, but that led us to sinful, broken behavior. When we finally met Jesus, everything changed. We believe God is still restoring people one person at a time. And today we're going to hone in on three words in verse 8. We're going to talk about hard-hearted sexuality because Jesus said, God had to meet you in grace where you were because your hearts were hard. It's one word in the Greek language. It's the word sclerocardia. For those of you who have any kind of medical training or history at all, you'll see the word heart in there really, really hard. The word sclero is the interesting word in the Greek language. When you find that word all over Greek literature, it means this, a hard, rough, cruel surface. It's a hard, rough, cruel, harsh condition of your soul. It's a person who takes an unreasonable and unmovable position. Jesus said, I could answer your question, but you've already answered it for yourself. And there's nothing I can say to help you see truth because you've already decided what's true for you. I will say this for today's message and for this entire series. If you already know where you stand on this and you don't care what God says, if you have a rough, hard, cemented position in your heart, this message series is probably going to drive you away, not bring you closer to God because this message series is for people who have had their heart replaced, their heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh. All of us, unfortunately, approach God in every area of our life with sclerocardia until we met Jesus. But Ezekiel said, when you meet Jesus, things change. 
And all of a sudden, your heart is soft enough to receive things. And eventually, through the process of discipleship and sanctification, you not only receive what God says, you actually want to do what God says. So that's where we're going to try to move in this message today. We're going to talk about hard-hearted sexuality, but we're not going to define it as much as we're going to discuss it. I got a text from a friend uh, after our 830 service that said, if you were to ask me what I got out of today's message, I would say this. Um, he would say, I think today's message taught me how to connect with people who view sexuality differently than me rather than reject people who view sexuality differently than me. If that happens to you through today's message, that would be a win for me. We're just going to discuss hard-hearted sexuality. I don't know that we'll have all of the answers, but we'll talk about its consequences. And we'll talk about a pathway for people experiencing hard-hearted sexuality. Let's start with what I believe first is a misunderstanding in the church. Number one, your sexuality cannot earn you salvation and it will not eliminate you from salvation. I think that's important to say because of what has been said over the last 25 to 30 years. Your sexuality does not earn you salvation. It also cannot eliminate you from salvation. You're not in a pool of people who can't connect to Jesus because of your sexuality. I think the church, unfortunately, has so bluntly stated its message on sexuality, and I think they have, in such a rigid way, presented kind of the final truth of what the Bible says, that they have created a passage within the narrow door that's even narrower than the door itself. And I think that's led to a misunderstanding in culture about what the Bible teaches and how you can become a Christian. I think that line of thinking kind of goes something like this. Over the last 25 or 30 years, I think the church has just kind of very simply and bluntly said, Christians can't be gay. And I think that has turned into, so gay people can't be Christians. Because Christians are all heterosexual, which means your salvation as a Christian comes through your sexuality. That is simply not what the Bible teaches about salvation. Like your sexuality is not engaged one way or another in how we attach to Jesus through, a, through how we attach to God through a man named Jesus. So I think it's really important to understand this point. You don't earn salvation by getting it right sexually. You, you don't eliminate yourself from salvation because you feel like you're broken sexually. If you're in the gay community here or watching online, please hear this. Anyone you know who is a follower of Jesus is not connected to God because they are right sexually and you're wrong. If anyone in your life is connected to God spiritually, it's in spite of their broken sexuality, not because of their perfect sexuality. Amen? Like, listen, that's what the Bible teaches. You may not be aware of that, but like, that's what the Bible teaches. We are all broken in this area of sexuality. And I don't know that there's an area, to be really honest with you in Scripture, where the faith community has less credibility or, or less moral high ground to tell the world how they should be living than the area of sexuality. Because the faith community is not very good at it. Like the two largest faith organizations in the United States of America are the Catholic Church and the Southern Baptist Convention. Go read how they've been doing in the area of sexuality, sexual abuse, um, sexual abuse allegations. We're not like good at this. And if you look at the Bible, like we're even worse. A lot of times we, we think of the Bible as our heroes of the faith, but have you looked at the sexuality and the sexual shape of the heroes of our faith? Like Abraham is one that like, 
not only is he a big deal, but he's the only one who maybe even gets it close to right. He was only married twice, never to two women at the same time. He got married after his wife died. But during his first mess, uh, uh, marriage, he did probably between the age of 85 and 100 sleep with one of his wife's servant who was probably a teenager. Like we won't be like that guy. Um, Jacob, his grandson, married two sisters and then slept with both of their assistants and had kids with like all four of them. You'll be like, you'll be like that guy? Like we read about one of the 12 tribes of Israel, a guy named Judah, whose daughter-in-law pretended to be a prostitute so she could sleep with her father-in-law so that she could have a son to take care of her. She pretended to be a prostitute. Rahab really was a prostitute. Like she actually made her money having sex with people who would show up at her house. Do you know both of those ladies are included in the genealogy of Jesus? One who acted like a prostitute, one who was a prostitute. Samson only slept with prostitutes because he thought that like a wife would bring some baggage with her. So he's like, I'll just, I'll just do prostitutes. I don't want to get married at all. Um, for those of you chuckling even a little bit, we have a marriage conference Friday and Saturday. <laughs> There's a better way to work through ha the hassle of marriage than Samson, one of like the rescuers of Israel. David was the great king of Israel. He was married eight times, but he was only married to seven women at once. So like that is like, like maybe a little better. He left his first wife and then he kind of had a thing for his best friend's wife. So he had an affair with her and killed his best friend. We gonna be like that guy. His son, his son Solomon had 700 wives. Imagine the Valentine's Day budget. And then 300 women on the side, and I'm told you spend more on them on Valentine's Day than like you even do on your real spouse. It's like, this, like these are people. The, like, these are our people. Like, can you imagine if David showed up for worship auditions at Journey? I've written some songs. God's called me to be a worship leader. He, he sings, he plays. Like, man, this guy's incredible. He fills out the background for him. Tell us a little bit about your family. He's like, well, I've been married seven times. Like, oh, um, um, we might have a spot for you in our parking ministry. Uh, <laughs> my son Solomon, he'd like to maybe volunteer in your discipleship track stuff. He like writes some really good content. Tell me about him. Well, he and his 700 wives, it's like, ooh, he's going to have to go through growth track twice. Like, like, like <laughs> these are guys. And I think a lot of times we sanitize the sexual morality of people in the Bible because it makes us feel like we can have the high ground of sexual morality in our culture. One of the problems at all about having heroes in the Bible is the reality is there are no heroes in the Bible. There's a hero in the Bible and his name is Jesus. There's only one. There's only one that has a moral high ground. And I think a lot of times in 2023, we like to see heroes in the Bible because we think we can then be heroes in our generation and we can say, look at me. Listen, there's nobody other than Jesus that can say, look at me. I've got the moral high ground in this area of sexuality. So I think we gotta be careful as a church to help people understand, like your sexuality doesn't earn you salvation. It doesn't eliminate because if it did, not only could these guys not pastor our church, we wouldn't let them serve in our student ministry or kids ministry with their sexual resumes. Yet I think most of them will be in heaven. Now, not if we set the standards, because they wouldn't meet our standards. But somehow in the grace of God, he used them anyway, amen? Like, 
that's the story of grace, the gospel of grace that accompanies this area in scripture when we talk about sexuality. Unfortunately, spiritual orientation doesn't determine sexual orientation. I wish it did. If it did, there would be no Christian men who looked at porn. They would absolutely have zero desire for it because they're Christians. But I've not found that to be the experience. There'd be no Christian marriages that ever ended in divorce because you would only, like you would only love your wife with like selfless energy. But that doesn't seem to be our experience. There would be no Christian teenagers who gave their life to Jesus, were baptized and lived for Jesus, whoever did anything wrong after homecoming or prom, because they wouldn't want to if your spiritual orientation changed your sexual orientation. But like, it, it doesn't. So somehow we have to learn to live in the mess of grace, because your sexuality doesn't earn you salvation, doesn't eliminate salvation. But as we narrow to what the Bible says, we learn, number two, that our conduct and conviction does give evidence of our salvation or our lack of salvation. So you heard me say our spiritual orientation doesn't determine our sexual orientation. I wish I did. I wish it did because I got saved before I was introduced to pornography. And I wish I was repelled from it the first time, but I was not. A lot of years, a lot of mentoring, a lot of accountability to get me from where I was to where Jesus wanted me. But I knew Jesus first. I just had like a really long way to go. Spiritual orientation doesn't determine sexual orientation, but spiritual orientation does begin to change your affections. Let me say it this way. Becoming a Christian might not change how you feel sexually. Listen closely. But it will change how you feel about how you feel sexually. Let me say it again. Becoming a Christian may not change how you feel sexually, but it will change how you feel about how you feel sexually. Example, two single people, um, not married, uh, living together, sleeping together, both of them become Christians. They are not all of a sudden repulsed from one another until they get married. They still love each other. They still may live together. They still may sleep together. All of a sudden, they feel differently about that. Didn't used to bother them. Now it bothers them. They feel differently about the way they feel towards one another, and now all of a sudden they want to honor God. Um, Somebody see, you know, high school guys looking at porn, and then he becomes a Christian, and all of a sudden he still is drawn to pornography, but when he looks at pornography now, he feels bad about it. He feels different about the way he still feels and the things he's attracted to. Uh, Young college gal, dresses extremely immodestly because the attention from guys gives her tremendous value. And she becomes a Christian. And every now and then she'll still dress like that because she needs the affirmation from their eyeballs, but she feels differently about how it feels to get her value from what other people think about what she looks like. Frat boy who in college goes from party to party, girl to girl, and then as a businessman becomes a Christian, but he's still traveling the country doing the sales thing. And every now and then he'll go city to city, girl to girl, but now he feels differently than he felt in college. Like, didn't change his sexual orientation, but it changed the way he felt about how he was expressing his sexual orientation. And all of a sudden, there's like something inside now saying, um, if you love Jesus, you shouldn't love this as much as you used to love this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we learn a little bit about the heart of discipleship. Paul says to the church in Corinth, now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. 
And all of us who are Christians, we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. As we do that, we're being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul is saying, as you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit conviction in your life changes the way you feel about things that you feel, and all of a sudden, that change is enough to affect your conduct. Not that your feeling is changed, but your conduct is changed because your conviction is changing. He said the Holy Spirit helps do that. And what you need to understand is the process of discipleship, and I think the whole message today hinges on this. The process of discipleship allows God to tell us who we are and who he wants us to become. I believe your first evidence or lack of evidence about your salvation comes in your agreement with or your disagreement with this statement. As a matter of fact, some of you who are feeling a lot of tension right now need to pull out your phone, you need to take a picture of this screen, and you need to try to figure out if you believe that. Because if you do not believe that, I would question whether or not you've experienced biblical salvation. Because 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says the Holy Spirit inside of you is going to be saying, I know that's true, and it's not easy, but I know it's true, and it's not easy, and I don't know that I can do that, but I know it's true, and man, I just want to live more for Jesus. Like, Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that the Holy Spirit, as you look at that screen, is telling you, there's no doubt that's true, and I don't know how I'm going to do it, but there's no doubt that's true. At the exact same time, if you look at that statement and, and you're repelled by it, it's probably a lack of authentic salvation in you. Because what it means is instead of God being in charge of your life, you're in charge of his life. And who's really God if God answers to you? I'm gonna ask it again. I want you to answer out loud this time. Who's really God if God answers to you? Yeah, we are. We are. So this is the fulcrum. This says either yes I have given my life to God or no, 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 no. I'm not going to let anyone tell me how to live my life because this is evidence that the Holy Spirit lives in you. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do this in John chapter 16. He says, truly, I tell you, it's for your good that I'm, gonna, that I'm going away because unless I go away, the advocate's not going to come to you. But if I go, I'm going to send him to you. And when he comes, when the Holy Spirit gets into your life, he's going to prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people don't believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. About judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Jesus says, you'll know that the Holy Spirit is with you and that you have authentic salvation because when you sin, your like, internal Holy Spirit will say, we shouldn't have done that. I feel bad about that. Um, I was drawn to that. I like that. That's the way I'm shaped, but I feel bad that I did that. Sin. The Holy Spirit will say, you shouldn't do that. Righteousness. Um, you'll see something that you should have done and then you didn't do it and you lay in bed and the Holy Spirit says, you should have helped that person. I told you, I told you you should help. I told you you should have given to that cause. I told you you should have answered the phone. I told you, you you shouldn't have been that harsh with them. I told you, like the Holy Spirit in the inside is just saying this. I told you I wanted you to do things the way Jesus would do them. About judgment, meaning I look around at people and all of a sudden I'm convinced that this world is not all there is and it's like, man, I gotta make sure and tell people that like there's another life after this one and I want them to know who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit's always talking to my heart about it. Like that's one of the ways you know you have evidence of salvation. Paul says if you have conviction, you'll have conduct transformation. If you have that, you'll have evidence of your salvation. If you have no conviction or conduct transformation, you probably need to question, have I really given my life to Jesus? The key question in this area about Jesus and the Holy Spirit is what does he want, what does he want from my sexuality? What does Jesus say about sexuality? Let me tell you what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say, 
do whatever makes you happy. You got to realize that. Jesus does not say, do whatever makes you happy. Just like I've got a daughter. How many people in the room have daughters? Okay, so if, if they are a sophomore or beyond, you'll get it. If not, you, you probably will still get it. If my daughter, sophomore year homecoming, left our house with her date and left the house, and as her father, I looked at her date and said, hey, um, have her home by midnight, and uh, man, do whatever makes you guys happy. <laughs> they, like they should lock me up and take my daughter away from me. Because our spiritual father cares about his children, that's not his standard. Do whatever makes you happy. What is Jesus' standard of sexuality? Here's the answer. We actually know this because he was asked these questions in this area of tension. Creation and resurrection are the twin pillars of what I would call Jesus' ethics and end goals of faith in the areas of marriage and sexuality. He was asked two gotcha questions, one in Matthew 19, one in Matthew 22, about this hot-button issue of marriage, divorce, remarriage, and Jesus both times. So let me tell you how you can know God's plan for your life. The ethics of faith in the area of sexuality, got to go back to creation. The end goal of faith in the area of sexuality, got to go to recreation, got to go to eternity. So what do we read? The first aha, gotcha moment. Hey, Jesus, what do you think about this confusing area of marriage and sexuality? Matthew chapter 19, can we get divorced? When can we get divorced? How soon can we get divorced? Jesus said in verse four, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made a male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not one separate. So you say, Jesus, help me understand what you think about marriage, sexuality, the divorce, this whole deal. And Jesus said, well, we got to go back to creation to see what God thinks about that. And literally, like on our first page of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, we see Jesus' first pillar of how we discuss and manage this discipleship area of sexuality, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over livestock, over all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. When we talk about discipleship 101, what are the ethics that Jesus would have in sexuality? Here's what you need to know as you begin your spiritual journey. The wrong discipleship question to begin with is what is my sexual identity? The right discipleship question to begin with is what is my spiritual image? Jesus, what are we going to say in this area? Jesus, well, let's start off by asking the right question, okay? Let's not get too far ahead. I do believe, by the way, the question of my sexual identity, I believe that's an important part of the discipleship conversation. It just can't be question number one. Jesus said, when you begin your discipleship journey, question number one is not what's my sexual identity, it's what is my spiritual image. What has God designed and created me for? His first twin pillar was go back to creation, answer the question, what did God create you for? Human beings were not created as sexual beings. They were just created with the ability to be sexually active for a season of their life. They were created as image bearers. They were created in the image of God. They were created with the ability to be sexual, but they were not created as sexual beings. We cannot look at the world and say, until you've defined your sexuality, you're not truly human. No one would say that of a child under the age of 10. Well, they're not, they're like, they can't have sex yet, so they're not fully human. 
Like we look at every child over under the age of 10 and say they were fully human. We don't go to the nursing home and look at people who are in their 90s past the age of being able to have sex and say, well, they're not fully human anymore because they're not really sexually active. We don't view humanity that way. So every now and then we need to like shake our head free of the cobwebs of what culture is saying and say, wait a minute, what did Jesus say? And what Jesus said is we are image bearers not just created as a sexuality. So we would say gender and sex are a function of humanity's purpose, but it's certainly not our sole purpose and it's not our primary identity. And some of you need to hear this and you need to hear something else. Not only are gender and sex a function of our purpose, but not our purpose or identity, you need to understand that what you have experienced in wrestling through issues or being wounded in the areas of gender and sexuality is not who you are. Some of you have been divorced, but it's not who you are. Some of you have been sexually impure, but it's not who you are. Some of you have been sexually abused. Had a chance to talk with a dear friend this morning in his 60s who said, I've been trying to clear the cobwebs of voices in my head from abuse in my childhood for years. I think today's helping me. Some of you have been sexually abused, but it's not who you are. Some of you are addicted to pornography, but it's not who you are. Some of you have been unfaithful to your spouse, but it's not who you are. And some of you have identified as gay or trans or just trying to figure it out but it's not who you are. Dr. Christopher Yuan is a professor of Bible at Moody Bible Institute. He's been there for a decade, but before he was there, he was living as a a gay man and he was locked up, incarcerated for dealing drugs. He one day, as he was walking through the prison hallways, found a Bible in a trash can and pulled it out and began to read it. And as he read from the beginning to the end, He said, I began to realize that my sexuality was not who I was, it was how I was. My identity was who I was, and it was an image bearer of God. Some of you, your whole life, people have been telling you your sexuality is who you are. No, 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 it's how you are. Who you are is a child of God created in the image of God. The first pillar of creation is that yeah, you, you have the ability to have sexual activity, but you're not a sexual being. The next test came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 22. Here was the next gotcha question. The first one was, hey, when do we get divorced? He's going to say the wrong thing. Everyone will hate him. The next one was about a principle in the Hebrew religion called leveret marriage. Leveret marriage was this. I've got a brother. I get married to my wife. We're not able to have kids. I die by law. He has to have a child with her so that child can take care of her before he goes and marries his own person. So they came to Jesus and said, law of leveret marriage. Guy got married, died before he could have a kid. Um, His brother married the woman, died before they could have a kid. His brother married the woman, died before they could have a kid. His brother, seven seven brothers married the same woman. None of them had a kid with her. Um, They all died. In heaven, who's going to be the real husband? (laughs) Nobody's going to answer this right. Nobody's going to follow Jesus anymore. And Jesus once again says, you don't know the scripture. Because the answer is in Matthew 22, 30. At the resurrection, people aren't going to be married nor are they going to be given in marriage. When we're in heaven, we're going to be like angels. We're not going to be married. We're not going to be sexual. Can I say something for those of you who are Bible people? If our primary identity at the beginning is not sexual, 
and our primary identity at the end is not sexual? How can we let the entire time in between be based on our sexuality? It's not where we came from. It's not where we're going. Why would we let it control all of our lives? I think followers of Jesus simply must not believe that if you cannot be sexually fulfilled, you cannot be fully human. The French philosopher René Descartes said in the early 1600s, I think, therefore I am. He said, What's, what separates humanity from the rest of creation is that we know how to think. Because we think, we're fully human. I think today's culture motif would say this, once I figure out my sexuality, I'm sexual, therefore I am. No, 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 no. What sets us apart is not our sexuality, it's our spiritual image that sets us apart. Theologian A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing you need to know about any of us. I think today modern philosophers would say, what comes to our mind when we think about our sexuality is the most important thing to know about us. But that simply is not what the Bible teaches. So as we get to the end of this point, we have to understand that biblical discipleship will always place spiritual identity above sexual behavior. And your sexual behavior may be broken for a lifetime, but the way you feel about it will change as you pursue Jesus. The way you feel about how you feel, conviction, conduct changes because of Jesus. We said in this series, we're never going to end on brokenness. We're always going to move towards hopes. And number three, we're going to see the gospel of grace as given the church to the people of God to help them in their spiritual and their sexual journeys. We're going to end by saying, what has God done to step into this mess and help us? Well, he's given people, his people, his followers, the church. And I want to give you three areas where I believe the church has to do well for people in their spiritual and sexual journey. Letter A, the church must faithfully teach God's word. That is our first responsibility. The church must faithfully teach God's word. It has not always done this, and I believe a lack of biblical literacy in our culture right now allows liberal progressive churches to tell people things the Bible says that it doesn't really say, or some of the things the Bible says without all of the things the Bible says. It's why as a church, we're reading through the Bible together this year. You need to read it on your own. If you're literate, you need to get one of these books. You just need to start reading it. It will tell you what God says about life. In Jeremiah 5.31, one of the big problems in Israel was people stopped teaching the word of God. In Jeremiah 5.31, God said, the prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority. And my people love it this way. But what are you going to do in the end? Like when the spiritual people start making it up based on what they want rather than what God says, like run the other direction. God said to the prophet Isaiah, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to people who say, well, the Bible says, but I say. We said last week, Christians don't answer, ask the questions, what did the Bible say? We say, what does the Bible say? Because the Bible is eternal, which means it's always impactful. The Bible is timeless, which means it's always timely. God has not changed his mind. So we are always gonna be a church that affirms scripture. Journey will always affirm scripture. And when it comes to this area of sexuality, we will teach what the Bible teaches you say, what does the Bible teach? It's gonna be way easier to give you a list of what the Bible tells you to do than what not to do. If you don't believe me, just go back in your Bible reading this week and read Leviticus like 16, 17, 18 again. There's a big list. And it honestly makes you wanna go back and read about infected hairs again. Like, it, like it's, a, it's like, wow, that's a big list. So let me give you the two things that the Bible points us to 
in regards to human sexuality. I call them holy sexuality based on the book by Christopher Juon. Holy sexuality is chastity and singleness and faithfulness in biblical marriage. Every command of God in the realm of biblical sexuality can be summed up in these two things. Chastity and singleness, celibacy and singleness, and faithfulness in a biblical marriage. I'll share this resource where Dr. Yuan kind of takes this and unpacks it in an entire book. It's really good. But what you need to know is this is the only thing Scripture affirms in the area of sexuality. So what about David? What about Solomon? What about Abraham? We have to understand as we read Scripture the difference between descriptive Bible teaching and prescriptive Bible teaching. So what's that mean? You have to know when you're reading a passage of Scripture whether it's describing something that happened or prescribing something that's supposed to happen with you. For instance, when you read that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 girls on the side, you're like, is the Bible describing what happened to Solomon or telling me that I should have 699 more wives and I need to find 300 women on the side? That's an easy picture of, no, no, that's descriptive, not prescriptive. Well, how about David? David left his first wife and then married his best friend's wife instead. Is that what I'm supposed to do? Like if she's really hot and I see her one night taking a bath like David did with his friend's wife? Like, no, no, no. That's describing what happened, not prescribing what's supposed to happen with you. The Bible describes a lot of jacked up sexual situations in the Bible as we've already referenced with our heroes. It only prescribes two things, chastity and singleness, faithfulness and biblical marriage. You should know where we stand as a church if you've ever looked at our website or you've gone through Growth Track. Because I pulled this next section right off of our website. I went and copied and pasted it this week. Say, Christian, what does Journey believe about marriage and sexuality? Here's what's written on our website. We believe God created man and woman as gendered beings, each created in the image of God, fully equal in value, dignity, and worth, with complementary roles in the created order. We believe God wonderfully foreordained and immutably created each person as either holy male or holy female in conformity with their biological sex. We believe that God instituted marriage as an exclusive lifelong and covenantal union between one man and one woman, which signifies a relationship between Christ and his church. We believe God designed and blessed sexual intimacy to be enjoyed exclusively within the marriage covenant. We believe the Bible teaches that all forms of lust and sexual intimacy outside of a marriage between a man and a woman are sin, but that they can be repented of, forgiven, surrendered spiritually, which allows all followers of Jesus to walk in obedience, freedom, ministry, impact, and the fullness of grace and peace. And there's all the things we believe the Bible says about those. You have to understand, Journey will always affirm Scripture. We will always teach what the Word of God says, which means... I'm going to give you a phrase that I just think is important for you to know in the conversation, which means I believe that Journey would be a non-affirming church in the eyes of the LBTQ faith community. I think affirming non-affirming is an important part of conversation for us as we engage with people trying to figure out uh, where we stand on loving people and discipling people in this area. Um, I say I believe because I do not get the final word. One, I'm not a leader in this community. And I thought there was an interesting article. Every year, the Kansas City Star, um, during Pride Month, gives a list of affirming churches in the Kansas City area. And this year, as they talked about how they put the list together, they said this, which I thought was good. Ultimately, the judgment of whether a church is affirming falls into individual people's experience who explore these communities, how loved and affirmed and comfortable they are, because everyone's experience could be different. 2021, the star said, we only 
listed churches who had an openly gay minister that led the church, um, and they were publishing LGBTQ community um, materials, helping people understood how their faith community would embrace them. Other than that, they said they wouldn't go to any church that had a pastor who was not um, openly living in, in the gay community. Uh, they amended that in 2022, and they said, we only believe affirming churches do two things. They permit members of the LGBTQ community to serve in all leadership positions, including up to the senior pastor, and they officially sanction and officiate same-sex marriages. If that's what affirming is, that's not our church. Because we affirm scripture, I believe we would be non-affirming in the eyes of the gay community. Now listen, here's what's interesting. For 11 years, we've had members of the gay community, um, gay couples coming to our church. And there's no doubt they feel loved and they are often surprised when they find out what we believe because of how we've behaved. They're surprised that we're nice to them. They're surprised that we get to know their names. They're surprised we turn around and talk to them in worship. They're surprised that they can join our small groups and learn the Bible. They're surprised that we behave like Jesus and believe the word of God because they've never met someone who does both. And I believe there's a lane we can run in where if we do both, we can not only love people well, but we can lead people spiritually well. The church is responsible to teach the word of God so followers of Jesus can know how to walk with Jesus. That's letter B. The church must work to help Christians walk out their faith in a way that honors God. One of the unique things about public gatherings today that probably wasn't as much in the early days of scriptures, we have Christians and non-Christians gathered together. We know the church in Corinth did that. But the church's role, primarily on Sunday morning when we meet, my role is to assume that you are all followers of Jesus who want me to help you understand how to follow Jesus through scripture. Not really recruiting, not debating, um, not trying to convince people in this room to become Christians, assuming that you are and telling you what the Bible says. It's our job to direct you and redirect you spiritually. We assume that's why you're here. That's why it's important every now and then for a pastor like me to get up after watching a few weeks of Chiefs Run and say, you know what, we probably have some married women in our church. Um, you probably have an inappropriate crush on Travis Kelsey. Like, you're married. <laughs> I see the way you talk about him. As your pastor, I want, you, I want to redirect that. Um, I think it's also good for a pastor like me when you see the Chiefs make a run like that to tell some of the married men in our church, listen, I think you might have an inappropriate crush on Travis Kelsey. Um, and as your pastor, <laughs> as your pastor, I need to redirect you. Um, because the way you talk about him and the look in your eye when you talk about him, it's probably less than like spiritually healthy. Like that's the job of it. That, like that's the job of a church. Um, job of a church is to help children who have wandered away from their dad. Anybody get to the parade this week? Anybody get a chance to go to the parade? Y'all know they had eight child reunification centers along the parade route this year for kids that would get lost. I think either 32 or 37 kids that got separated from their parents that had to reconnect. One of the big great news of the parade is that like all the kids went home at the end of the day. Of the 30 that got lost, they all got back together with their mom and dad. You know why a church exists? Because sometimes in the parade of life, people get separated from their spiritual father. And we're the place who's like, hey, I know, like, I know where your spiritual family is. Come back um, and we'll help, you, we'll help you reconnect. Like that's what we do. Um, I think a lot of times the church has tried to be the mouthpiece to the outside instead of handling the inside. And in 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the apostle Paul says, listen, when it comes to very specifically teaching about sexual purity, talk to the Christians, not the non-Christians. Listen to what he says. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. 
I didn't mean people who don't go to the church. Not at all meaning people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindler or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Don't even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside the church? So we're trying to figure out how to pass all these laws for people who are not Christians and ignoring all the sexual immorality just sitting in the seats. Paul's like, don't do that. Situation at Corinth, pre-jacked up. We learn early in the letter that there's a a family in the church at Corinth whose son is sleeping with his stepmom and posting about it on Facebook. And everyone in the church is liking it. And Paul's like, okay, okay, so a couple things now that we're followers of Jesus. So we're not going to sleep with our stepmom. If we do, we're not going to put it on social media. And if it is on social media, we're not going to like it as the church because that's not really what we stand for. That's what he's talking about here. I told you to stop doing that stuff. He said, I can't tell you to police the whole world sexually. I'm just talking about people in the church who are trying to live for Jesus. You got to help them understand when they've crossed a line and you got to pull them back. What's pretty cool is in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he said, hey, that kid and his stepmom, they've repented and they've apologized. They're really ashamed. You need to embrace them and love them again in the church because they feel like they can never come back. They're so, afraid, they're so ashamed of their behavior, they feel like you won't embrace them anymore. So get them back in and love them up. It's a really cool story to kind of follow. But church and scripture are how we disciple Christians, not the lost world. A couple years ago, I got a phone call from a student who had been in my student ministry for five years, from seventh grade through his senior year. Went off to college, called me second semester of his freshman year and said, hey, Pastor Christian, you got a minute? Yeah, what's going on? He said, I just wanted you to know I just came out uh, gay to my parents. Uh, And my first question was, how did it go? How are you doing? How'd they react? Is everything okay? Um, Do you feel safe? Yeah, 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 yeah. And he said, I just wanted, wanted you to know before you heard it from someone else, because I have so much respect for you. He said, I just want to know like, if I can ever still call you and talk to you about things in my life. And I said, of course. And he said, if, uh, like on semester break, if I want to come back to church, can I come back to church? And I said, of course. And I said, listen, I love you. I loved you yesterday when I didn't know you were gay. I love you today now that I know you're gay. I love you. If you need me for anything, please let me know. I didn't hear much from him for about two and a half years. And at the tail end of his junior year, he called He said, I'm dating a guy. We're considering getting married. Can we have breakfast with you? We have a lot of questions about Christianity. Yeah, come on. So we had this three-hour breakfast over in Overland Park. Got to know each other a little bit. Got to hear stories. And I said, all right, what are your questions? And they're like, well, if um, I was getting ready to start our church. I was actually between churches. I did not have a church I was a pastor at. Um, And they said, well, like, if we got married, could we come to your church? And I said, like, anyone can walk in the doors of our church on a Sunday morning. Yes, you could come to our church. So well, could we come to a small group? And I said, if you really wanted to learn the Bible, I'm sure there would be some discipleship opportunities that would, yeah, like, help you pursue Jesus in a small group. And he said, well, could we serve? And I said, I would not let you serve in any place where you would teach the Bible because you t- I know you don't believe all of it, so I wouldn't let you teach it. But I'm sure we're going to do a lot of stuff in the community. Like, I'm sure there are places where if your heart moved you to help, I'm sure there are places where, where that could happen. And he said, could we sing in the choir? And I said, can I call time out and ask a question? And he said, yeah. And I said, before I keep answering all these questions, 
can we just talk a little bit about your faith life? Like, yeah. And I said, are you guys going to church right now anywhere? No. Are you guys reading your Bible right now? No. Do you ever pray? No. Either one of you have jobs? Yeah. Do you give in the offering when you get paid? No. Are you honoring God with your sexual purity right now? No. Are you serving in your community? No. Are you engaged in anything globally? No. And I said, listen, it looks like you're asking me to publicly recognize your relationship, but you don't have a private relationship with the God of the universe. Can we like maybe start with your walk with Jesus rather than all the things you could do at our church? Because like you're asking me Christian questions, but it doesn't sound like you even consider yourself a Christian. So like let's just start maybe with your relationship with God, not your relationship with the church. I talked to a former pastor who's an Uber driver after our 8.30 service, and he said, man, thank you so much for that. Um, he said, as an Uber driver, he said, I, I take so many people on trips from the gay community. And he said, when I find out I'm a pastor, they have tons of questions about Christianity and the Bible. And I don't feel like they've been able to ask any Christians they know their spiritual questions because they don't feel like they're allowed to kind of live in both worlds. So like, thank you. I had a woman come and meet me at the end who said, when I was a teenager, when I graduated from high school, I took my Bible and every religious book I had and left it on the front steps of the church because I was a lesbian and they did not know what to do with me. They did not know how to even talk to me. She said, I met someone in college who began to disciple me and my husband of 34 years died in March. I'll be a widow for a year. But thank you for like saying in this church, we can talk about stuff because that was not my experience. Like church is the place where Christians work out their junk. And we all have junk, not just people in the gay community, amen? amen. Yeah, probably should have been a louder amen, but I, like, I, know, I know you're with me. <laughs> Faith that honors God will trust God. So we said last week, before anyone ever has a lust problem, they have a trust problem. We put on the screen God's will for our life and what life looks like when we break it. I want to throw it up again. Life is God intended, spiritual intimacy and trust, work that brings shalom, selflessness and marriage, blessing a family, innocent trust and sexuality. The reason I tell people in any area, run towards what God wants for your life is because I think it'll end up looking like this, if not here in eternity. I think we have too many parents who are willing to try to troubleshoot this life. Spiritual separation and a lack of trust in God, work that breaks shalom, selfishness in marriage, the burden of family, shame and confusion. Like, let's just kind of, like, let's figure out how to exist in the column on your right rather than the column on your left. I think if we trust God, we just point people towards his promises and we hope he does what he says he will do, which means letter C, and I'll end with this, the church has to become a place where we are the spiritual family of those in the LGBTQ community who are trying to walk with Jesus. Not those who have said, I don't believe the Bible, but those who have said, I believe the Bible, I need the behavior of Jesus, I'm trying to figure some things out. In Mark 10, Jesus says to the disciples, Peter says, we've given up some stuff for you, Jesus, we're gonna be okay. Jesus says, truly I tell you, no one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Listen, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with persecutions in the age to come to eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last will be first. Did you hear what he said to Peter? Peter, when you follow me, you're gonna probably give up some relationships. You'll get those back in the church. Listen, when you become a Christian, most of the people in your life, if you really pursue hard after Jesus, when you become a Christian, most people are probably gonna separate from you. Listen closely. 
when somebody from the gay community becomes a Christian, probably all of their community is going to separate from them. We have to be a safe landing spot to say, man, you're trying to figure out the Jesus thing. I'm trying to figure out the Jesus thing. Let's like maybe try to figure out the Jesus thing together. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples. Today's bottom line, pretty specific. The church has to love and disciple people with broken sexuality like us by acknowledging our own brokenness, pointing them to the image of God and the truth of God's word, becoming their spiritual family until they're with their heavenly father. I said this at 8.30 a.m. You may want to jot it down. Love without discipleship is not really spiritual love. And discipleship without love is not really spiritual discipleship. It's hard. It takes both love and discipleship. You say, Christian, why are we doing this series right now? Like, it's not even election year. Like, nothing's on the, like, why are we doing this? Two reasons. Really, three reasons. Um, One, it's in Matthew chapter 19, and it's where we happen to be as we're teaching through the book of Matthew. But I have a more personal reason, honestly, that's about a decade old. In the first year of our church, a young family who'd started coming to our church called me and said, hey, pastor, we'd like to ask you some questions about our church. Can you come over? They lived in my neighborhood in Eagle Creek, went over, sat on their back patio. They had some iced tea out there, and we just talked. And I said, what's up? And the wife's brother had just come out as gay. And she said, would he still be welcome at our church? And I said, I think he would have to make that decision. However, we're not going to turn him away at the doors. And if he loves and follows Jesus, we, like, we will help him with that as far as we need to. I tried to answer questions as best I could. It was a family. I can't remember if they had one child and a baby or two, two children and a baby. As we were talking, she was holding her infant son in her arms. We kind of got through the discussion with her brother, and she started crying. And she said, I don't think that's my real question. It's all right, what's your real question? And she said, if this little boy I just had decides at 10 that he's gay, are you going to tell him he's broken? Are you going to tell him God doesn't love him? Are you going to tell him he's going to hell? Or will you love him? So that's a good question. And, and thanks for asking me that question. And as well as I could in truth and grace, I kind of scrambled. Like Jesus, but part of that is telling him the truth. But I think he would always feel safe with me. I can't guarantee how he'd feel with everyone at our church, but I promise you every interaction he had with me would would feel safe, I think. As I left that day, I thought, I was not equipped to answer that question very well. Um, I'm not ready to talk to that 10-year-old kid. But I also thought this, I'm not the best person for that 10-year-old kid to ask that question to. His mom and dad are. And as the pastor of this church, I have to equip moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas not to run from their kids and their grandkids when they say, I'm struggling with my sexuality. Because I'll be honest, I think this is the least effective way to have this conversation. Me talking to 900 people who are listening, I don't think it's very impactful. I think these conversations need to be had laying in bed at night. I think these conversations need to be had in the car line. I think these conversations need to be had taking kids to and from sports. I think conversations need to be had at grandma and grandpa's on the weekend. People that kids feel safe with, who they know love them with everything they have, need to know how to have these spiritual conversations to disciple the next generation of kids. I said last week, I thought each week people at our church would leave our church. 
Somebody asked me, Christian, do you think this series is beneficial for people in the gay community who are coming to Journey? No, I do not. I think most of them will leave. Um, it breaks my heart, but I get it. Be uncomfortable to sit in this room during this series. This, is, this series is not really for that generation. I think the last 30 years, the church didn't handle it well. They either said the wrong thing or said nothing and left this massive vacuum. This series is for the 800 kids our church will minister to this week under the age of 18 who are gonna wrestle with their sexual identity and they're gonna come to mom and dad and say, you're a Christian, what do I do? I think probably the only gay people will help in this series will be your sons and daughters, nieces and nephews, grandsons and granddaughters who are gonna come to you and say, grandma, grandpa, what do I do? And when you know how to have the heart of Jesus and the truth of God's word, maybe we'll do better in the next generation than the last generation, amen? It's gotta be our goal as a church. Certainly is my goal in this series. As we close, we always ask three questions. I know I've preached a long time and some of you might have to run even before our three questions are done scrolling. If you do, I'm just gonna ask that you leave very quietly because some people are gonna take in some serious stuff in this next three minutes. I'll pray quickly, our three questions will scroll and then I'll come up and close this in prayer. And then our team will be down here to talk and answer questions if you need that. But before we head into our private meditation, God, thank you for what we've learned. Thank you for what we need to know. And God, I pray you'll help us every day behave like Jesus while believing your word and find a lane of impact for our generation and for the next generation that makes a difference for you. Open our hearts and minds as we reflect on these three questions now in Jesus' name. Amen.